0: be right a lot. I don't always need to be right out loud. How can I be successful where others might not have been? What really helped us was honing in on the problem we were trying to solve.
1: You know those people who are effortlessly cool? Like the kind of person who when you see them in mismatched socks you wonder kind of what's wrong with yours. Or when you hear them recite the periodic table backwards, they somehow make it seem like it's the latest trend. That's Arielle. But our guest today is not just the epitome of cool. She's also a leader with a professional journey that's as dynamic as it is inspiring. Ariel is the pioneering CEO of Dato. She started her career as a designer and developer in the entertainment industry, where she worked on her first web products for The Hobbit, He's Just Not That Into You, and Harold and Kumar's White Castle. Her trailing contributions to the now-established direct-to-fan model for musicians has modernized how artists connect with their audiences. She then transitioned to advocacy, where she served as the senior director of digital product at Sierra Club, integrating machine learning into advocacy work for the first time, earning her a Webby Honorary Award. Now she's at the helm of data, where Arielle is revolutionizing HR technology, making processes more intuitive and improving the employee experience with automation. Her vision focuses on product thinking and measuring the business impact of people teams. And so today we'll explore Ariel's journey and insights on various topics, from product thinking in the people function to measuring the business impact of people teams. And we'll get her thoughts on the future direction of employee experience. We're also gonna delve into her playbook for driving innovation in both new and established companies. So join us as we uncover the stories, ideas, and learnings from Ariel's expansive career and the vision that is shaping data. Now let's get started. You know, your journey has spanned the world of entertainment and then advocacy, and now you're in HR tech. How are those worlds different? Just to kind of orient our listeners.
0: It's a great question. In many ways, they're not that different because at a high level, what we're doing is sort of the same thing. You you know, the foundation is the same, right? So it's all about really understanding who your customer is and what their needs are. My domain expertise is in product. Uh, You know, I've been doing products since before it was called product. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, this kind of work is fairly consistent across different types of industries. And that's the same, whether I'm working with rock stars and their fans or mm-hmm. with HR tech leaders or in the nonprofit world, you have lots of different things about them. You know, like I'll say yeah. the hours you work when you work with rock stars is very different than the hours. <laughs> you work with businesses. There's lots of like funny things that, that happen that are very unique at the end of the day. Really what you're trying to do is make somebody's life a little bit better, whether that's the fan connecting to their favorite artists or, you know, trying to save the planet or mm-hmm. trying to help businesses operate more efficiently, efficient. Oh my gosh. Efficiently. (laughs) There we go. That's that word. Making that a better experience for everyone involved.
1: First, I love that reminder on like the core of what product is and keeping that true. And in my experience, kind of all great product leaders ultimately come back to that thing, which is why it ends up being such a transferable skill. But the markets you're serving are inherently different. Like I honestly probably can't think of like two heuristics in my mind there are more opposite spectrums than like rockstar on one end <laughs> and then like traditional chro on the other one of
0: you the, things know what the they... biggest difference between them? oh yeah please rock stars have really high expectations and chros have really low expectations rockstar wants to be the coolest person out there they'll try all the new things it's like i don't care if the technology can only give me a bicycle i want a hoverboard let's figure out how to make it happen Yeah. The chro is like well, I guess this is as good as my HR tools can ever be. And it's Mm, like, mm. no, it can be so much better.
1: What's interesting is like, as you said that, you're hinting to this. On one hand, I'd imagine that makes serving HR leaders both easier and harder. Easier because like, they're going to be a friendly customer, but harder because like, you're in the world of startups and innovating, right? Like your whole business is people wanting things to be better. It's really hard when that isn't the case. Do you like, is my instinct right in terms of how that plays out? Or are there other ways that has kind of affected building your business?
0: Yeah, it's 100%. I mean, so we are a new category of software, which has a very interesting challenge, right? Because, you know, that means people have to know that something could exist to look for it. I think people teams and HR teams have been starved of good tools for so long that the idea that something that exists that could be better just seems Mm. impossible I mean, there's a lot of these overused quotes, right? But like, you know, if I'd asked the people what they want, they would have said faster horses, right? Yeah. This is a lot of what I see in the in the people teams, is like, okay, I need to know how to copy and paste faster or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how about we just don't do that at all?
1: That idea of creating a new category, that must feel a little bit frustrating having come from like the world of entertainment that is all like, give me more, it's better. But on the other hand, the work of shaking up industries and like shaking things up, like that feels very rock star to me. Like I see yeah. you right here yeah. and you're looking super cool. And I'm like, if anyone's going to do it, Ariel's yeah. is going to be the one who like, I mean, gets it I mean, I have
0: done. a little bit of a track record This is not my first rodeo, right? You know, I'm one of the pioneers of the direct to fan model. People thought we were crazy. The amount of feedback I got or like people hating on it in the beginning, where they were like, "You can't do this. You have to be on a major label. You have to go through these motions." I see another world, and I was lucky to work with some of the leading artists at the time who believed that that was possible. Now, I mean, nowadays, who signs with a major label unless you want to be a giant pop star? Everybody else knows that you make more money off of it, and yeah. like the world has changed so dramatically. And then you look at like advocacy. I went to an organization that was 120 years old. Like, how much? (laughs) Um, I don't want to say resistance because that's that's has a negative connotation to it but I would say the hesitation around adopting new technology at an organization like that um, was definitely palpable by the time I left Sierra Club it was like this is let's just keep going and and now we know that for better or worse we know the power of what technology can do for driving let's say political change
2: yeah yeah
1: (laughs) yeah this is very, very US centric in this example, but you know I think about the role technology has played in our politics over the last decade, really. Sometimes it's a savior, sometimes it's the harbinger of the end times, mm-hmm. but there's no doubt on any side of any debate that like it has been transformative, right? In, in yeah. ways that we were not at all ready for. I wanna kind of dig in and, and get practical here because it's clear that you've kind of done this a couple of times. That kind of process of like disrupting through innovation and bringing an old industry or old model, right? Because I, again, it's funny, thank you for pointing this out. I think of like rock stars and I think immediately cool, but like the world of big labels is another big old industry with like norms, right? And so in some ways that that's totally your bread and butter. You go into a place that is old and kind of set in its ways and you come up with new things I'm really curious if you have a story about a way you've charted resistance or even a set of playbooks. Like what have you kind of learned that might be repeatable for some of our um, listeners in terms of how you go about taking that journey of creating new categories?
0: Especially in organizations, right? Like it's a little bit different when you're working with when your stakeholders are a band or a person because you mm. have a one on one type of conversation and, and so yeah. this process can be condensed. But when you're working with an organization, in general, a lot of people tend to, when I see the mistakes are the That people make. They tend to jump in and say, okay, I have a shallow level of understanding of the problem. I want to jump in and I have impact. And what that tends to do is not leverage the knowledge that already exists there. Coming in and saying, "Okay, I assume that somebody else here is smart enough to have come up with whatever idea I'm going to have. Like, why has that not been successful previously? What have been those barriers? And really taking the time to learn for real what have been the challenges, why now and why this problem, this thing with this, whatever it is really taking that time to like learn and then having multiple feedback touch points where you're like, okay, here's the research I did. Here is what I have discovered. Does this align with how you see it? And bringing people along through this process. I think for a lot of people, this feels slow, but the thing Mm. is, is it drives alignment and it helps uncover what I'll call the skeletons in the closet where the bodies are buried, whatever horrible expression we want to use. (laughs) It really sets you up to say, okay, how can I be successful where others might not have been? And then when you get to that point where you're aligned on like, okay, we all have a shared understanding of what the problem is. And we have a shared understanding of what a solution would look like, not in like colors or buttons, but like, how does the world feel differently when we have this solution? Mm. And when you can create that at the high level, it unlocks all the stuff that happens in between, and then you can move real fast. And so in general, you'll always be faster if you take that time to involve the right people along the process and i see people just skip this all the time because they feel like it may it feels slow
1: one of the things though that i'm hearing is this balancing that passion for innovation and movement and change with respecting the organization and its norms and the wisdom that exists in there. The world of startups is a world of speed, right? And constantly, not just from, I think, entrepreneurs independently, but your investors as well. There's like a, where are we moving? Where are we moving? Where are we moving? I'm just curious... How you think about kind of managing that balance, being willing to go slow enough as your customers need, but you need to move faster than them, right? Like they're not moving at startup pace. What does striking that right balance look like? How do you know when you're on one end versus the other?
0: So the thing is, is like, what are we trying to solve for there? Right? Like when we talk about that speed to getting there, where is there? If you don't know where Mm. there is, you can get very quickly to the wrong place. And Mm. um, I do a lot of Mm. mentorship actually for um, early stage startups, especially in this, in the space of validation, early stage validation. Yes. In six months, you will have a product and market for who?
1: Yeah. Doing
0: what? So you'll be back to square one, right? And then you'll have wasted the most precious research resource you have as a startup, which is time. You'll find that like the scope of what that first release is and startups like that starts getting bloated and all sorts of things because they're not really sure
2: who mm. the
0: customer is and what their problem is. Even more specifically, what the number one thing is they have to solve to make that valuable to them. If you don't take time to do that fundamental work, everything else is just waste. I think the, the way I describe this in in my training trainings on this is thinking about betting, you know, as Mm. a confidence indicator, like how much would you bet? Because that's what you're doing with time. Are you so sure that the solution you're building is absolutely the right solution that you would bet your retirement savings on it? Because if Mm. you're not, you should probably dial it down so that your investment, aka your bet, matches your confidence level. And so taking that time to build it, build up that your confidence level at every step of the way will mean that when you get to the point where you release, you're releasing the right thing for the right person.
1: There's so much wisdom there. I've sat on the investor side. And so I know how much, how addicted we are to this thing we like to call momentum. I'm putting that in quotes. And like the pressure, quite frankly, we provide, I think, in all honesty, because we're not on the ground seeing all of that work, it's really hard to quantify three months of really understanding what the problem is. It's much easier to quantify. We have an MVP, we've released it out and all of that stuff. Did you ever struggle with this? Or do you ever see some of your mentees struggle with this where... Hey, there's a belief that we need to go slow, but like our investors are giving us this pressure for speed. And if so, how do you translate some of that invisible work? Are these just like the wrong investors or are they kind of tools of the trade that you've learned?
0: So document the heck out of this process because what they want to see is progress. They measure progress by stuff that they can see. So that's either data or we'll say product. You have the data. It can be recordings of calls you've done, like yeah. slice it together or whatever. Like there's a lot you can do to show that you are making progress. I'll say that you'd rather be in that place. If, if you have investment and you have... The runway to do this, by the time you get to the point where you need to say, ask for more, you should be in a much better place than if you've gone the other route where you're like, yeah. I, the speed, I have the MVP, but now I can't raise anything because it has no traction. A yeah. much harder problem to um, deal with, especially when you're dealing with like the countdown, the startup, yeah. <laughs> exactly. the main countdown, right? <laughs> and this is how you get into like, you know, some time where people are like, okay, I have this thing and I just need to keep doubling and tripling down compared to stepping back and being like, okay, what am I actually trying to do? let's go back to basics. So I think there's that also be very clear with your investors, like what you're trying to do and what you actually think this timeline looks like. And if they can't get behind that, you're probably signing yourself up for a toxic relationship from the beginning. An investor should be your biggest source of, you know, cheerleading as well as like critical thinking. They should be, you know, a part of your team. You should be leveraging their expertise. If you're just talking to them at certain cash infusion points, then, yeah, they're not going to see that work that happens behind the scenes. But if you're talking to them regularly and you're talking about where you are, what your challenges are, like they're going to be the ones who are part of that solution.
1: I want to kind of really deep dive on one aspect of kind of the Mm -hmm. innovation that you've driven before. And it's with driving machine learning in your advocacy work. And the reason that's so interesting right now is we're in this Gen AI explosion. Nobody can seem to get enough about AI. And there is a lot of, I think, appetite, but also chaos around trying to like apply AI in places it hasn't been before. It's easy to forget that lots of people have thought about this problem before. So I'm just like, I'd love for you to like, give us like a little bit of the story, right? How did you kind of come up with the idea of doing it in advocacy work? And what lessons did you learn from this that might apply to listeners who are thinking about their own kind of Gen AI in you industry journey?
0: You know, ideas come from everywhere. I cannot even say that this was like my idea. I think I'm sure there was a team and, you know, the volunteers and everybody. What really helped us was honing in on the problem we were trying to solve. And so in Mm. this case, you know, our research showed, you'll hear me always say this, our research showed (laughs) Mm.
2: that
0: one of the biggest challenges we had at Sierra Club was that there was activist burnout. You work so hard, you put so much into something that you a passion. And the time between when you put in that effort and when you might see success in the advocacy world can be, you know, months, maybe years, maybe decades, right? Because yeah. um, legislation moves very slow. You know, you can just feel like you're just pushing that rock up a mountain for so long Then just be like, you know, what's the point, right? You take a step back or whatever, right? And so what we really saw was that this was one of the biggest reasons that people would, I'll say, take a break or step away for a bit. And so what we wanted to do was really try to address this. So we Mm. use machine learning to actually be able to do a couple of things on on that side, which was better surfacing successes that were Mm. happening even at small scales, as well as being to bring those successes back to people who had taken action on something sort of related. So we could say, okay, you've taken this three years ago, two years ago, and this has been what's happening since then and like give them that connection back to it which we would never be able to do without machine learning. The scalability of that is impossible. And the other big thing that we did there was we were able to cross connect campaigns and different like bits that were happening along the way. The way advocacy had historically worked is, you know, you send out a blast and someone does a thing and then they send yeah. out another blast, right? Another email blast. And so they, ha- you rely on them, what like them reading the email to know whether or not that something has happened. And yeah. instead we created a platform that actually was able to surface all of these insights that really showed that we were able to keep people invigorated because we were able to have more touch points that were really related, but that a human being didn't have to always do in some sense of scale.
1: Were there any ways that you guys thought about measuring that kind of engagement or lower burnout? Was it just the ANIC data that you guys were getting back from the team? I'm just really curious.
0: One of the things that Sierra Club was really great at, probably still very good at, is they're quite data-driven. Because they're such a large organization that was a skill they did develop quite early, they definitely honed even while I was there. You can definitely see this. You can measure this in the engagement. You can straight up just measure it. And so what we were able to see is that being able to connect it back to the success as well as being able to kind of expand them to other things that felt more tangible, local, or more um, likely to have more immediate success, did help keep activists more engaged. And so it definitely helped. The product, you know, I, I was a Webby honoree for this product, don't know the current numbers, but I do believe that these principles still hold true today.
1: I absolutely love that. There are two things that struck me actually about your answer to that question. The first is you refused to like follow my track of like thinking about the technology first, right? I ask about Mm -hmm. machine learning and you're like, here is the very real problem. And I think especially right now with so much excitement around new technology, that's like a first principle that I see many of us forgetting. And like for good reason, I sit on a couple of boards and I do not blame our CEOs. Like there's a lot of board meetings meetings I've sat in over the last eight months where like the question the board is giving the executive team isn't like, what's the problem to solve? It's like, what are you doing with Gen AI? What are you doing with Gen AI? Right. And there's this really answer to like, here's what we're doing with Gen AI versus like, here's the problem that we have. But again, this piece on thinking about ultimately where are there new and interesting connections that just are not scalable to do before really feels like the heart of where like value is and like, where can that add a piece? And Really cool that you did that then and and thinking through how how some of those pieces will continue to evolve. You've kind of got a chance to see change across the worlds of advocacy and HR tech kind of over this like extended period of time. When you kind of look ahead at where both of those spaces are today, what are your top big bets? on where those industries are going from a technology perspective. Oh, yeah. If somebody is like, oh yeah, I, I see you like rubbing yeah. your hands, let's go.
0: <laughs> so I think the next 20 years are gonna be revolutionary for work, both on the advocacy and the HR side. I think we're yep. just on this tip of this iceberg of what's possible in workplace advancements. And this is everything from the space that you know data plays in like organizational efficiency and employee experience to remote work and to role sharing and different types of leave, you know, which vary depending on where you are in the world. I think we're going to continue to see governments respond to the needs of the people with better workforce protections and more mm. learning opportunities and more employment types. I think that technology it will need to evolve to support this type of work. I would love to see this, but in 20 years, I think you I would like to call the death of the HRIS. Mm. <laughs> I've never seen a more hated piece of technology that is like constantly being asked to like do wild gymnastics to fit an organization. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we'll see a lot of change in workforce tooling that will reflect the innovations that we have seen in other parts of the business. I think that the standards are going to really just completely shift because we're going to have a new generation of workers who are going to have expectations that their business tools are just as good as the tools they in their private lives?
1: I think that's a, a major key alert um, to steal a term from a, a musician I, I'm sometimes a fan of. I don't actually hear talked about like nearly enough how the speed of product advancement happening in our personal lives, making us less and less tolerant of like bad product professionally Um, and some places that historically could kind of hide because it like looked different. You know, you gave a beautiful kind of sweeping assessment of kind of what is like driving change. If you had to pick one or two of these that you think today's tech scene is underpaying attention to?
0: Okay, I might give you three. Okay, please. (laughs) So of course, I have to say the space that data plays in the idea that we measure customer journeys, and that we iterate and refine them to make them as optimal as possible. But we don't do that with employee journeys is wild to me such a missed opportunity, especially when you have a large workforce, the amount of waste, like just pure waste, and I'm not even talking about The lack of motivation impacts attrition. Just the amount of time spent (laughs) across an organization like that is just like an anchor the idea that you wouldn't put a fraction of the same investment that you put in other areas for customers to your employees is just wild. And I think you're going to see a lot of change in that space of just yeah. making it easier for humans to focus on things that only humans can do. That's really a space that dato plays in. Um, and I'm really excited to you know continue to see what we do in that space. As I alluded to, I think we're going to see a lot of change, though I think it'll be slower in the way that the different business tools and the HR tool stack work Work together, You know, Josh Burson talks about this a lot, but the like death of the HRAS or like the one, yeah. the one ring of to rule them all is what I always, yeah, uh, yeah. That I, always <laughs> this. I don't think that organizations are similar enough where this works. And I think we're going to start seeing piecemeals of products that then are designed to plug and play like we see in other areas of the business as well. And then solutions, I guess, you know, data, well, we, we also plug and play a lot of different places to bring those things together. But I think we're going to continue to see a lot of space in there. And then, you know, I'm a really big believer in things like role share and fractional work. There's actually another PTP company that plays in this space, and I th- I'm a big fan of theirs. As we continue to bring in more technology like generative AI, that we will continue to reduce the amount of jobs in general, especially in knowledge working space The solution to that is going to have to be to kill the 40 hour work week and Mm -hmm. um, split that work among more people. I think that'll bring Mm -hmm. a lot of balance to many people's lives, but I think we're going to need a whole lot of revolution to make that possible. There's going to be a lot on the tech side and how you enable that which, you know, how you pass work back and forth, how you act, yeah. like just how you administer it, all sorts of things.
1: You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask, the view of the European versus the American startup scene, and especially as you straddle both, right? Most of your customers still being in the US, I think a lot of your team still being New York based, and yet you kind of living and breathing life in Berlin. What are some of like the key differences and similarities you've noticed across those two geographies?
0: It's really interesting. This is one of the reasons why I'm glad that I came over here is getting out of that kind of bubble to be able to answer questions like this for myself. Now, granted, this is based off of my personal experience. So we're going to asterisk everything I say. Yeah. Here's some of the big differences. I think the EU scene is still much better at work life balance, even in the startup world, especially in Germany. You know, they're much more efficient workforce. They don't have this like mentality that like working more means you get more done because Mm -hmm. they have research that shows that's actually not true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you just can't ask your employees to work 60 or 80 hours. It's just illegal. Like you can't, do yeah. that here. <laughs> um, which by the way, I love, yeah. I believe happy employees are productive employees. And I really would say that if your company, your startup is going to live or die based on your employees work, like burning your employees out, then maybe you should really step back and ask yourself some hard questions. A couple of things that are make a difference. The cost of talent in Europe is much cheaper the talent is equally as good. I've worked in both places with great talent. The EU talent is great and it's much more affordable. There are different things that come with that, but I absolutely can recommend starting something, knowing that you can just go a lot longer um, with it. And by yeah. the way, if something happens like a pandemic, the government actually assists you a lot more than they would <laughs> into the U.S. There's a lot of those benefits. One other thing that the Europeans are really great at, which yeah. is this global perspective. Americans mm. are very single market focused because mm. of the U.S such a huge market that what you see when they want to expand internationally is they tend to buy up companies that are in like local markets because they just don't understand how to deal with localization of any kind currency yeah. language whatever Whereas europeans plan from the beginning because you drive 100 miles and you're in a different language the u.s has a couple of big things the reality is is that i still think americans are more innovative than the U- europeans <laughs> It pains me to say that. I think a lot of it is cultural, honestly. Yeah. Americans are risk takers. There's a lot of positive and I would say toxic things that contribute to that, but it's true. So I think that's one of the things that make the U.S. startup scene still very much leading the pack there. You know, because of this nature of, I guess, risk taking and um and the like, you know, everybody can make it in the States myth. You know, your employees are much more likely to take equity and a reduction in salary in the U.S. Equity is super challenging in, in Europe. There is actually, especially in Germany, they're they're working on a, a lot of different proposals to change this. So you don't mm. usually give direct equity. You have these like virtual shares programs. It's like a whole convoluted thing. And employees or like potential hires, they tend to value them less. And so I do think that there's a level of, Personal company success investment that comes with having equity in a company yeah. it's hard to produce when you don't. But when you have a legal structure that makes it challenging, I can see why many employees don't take it. That makes sense. I and mean, we do offer it, but some of our employees don't take it, and that's okay. Yeah.
1: I do think there's a little bit of a shift given what the tech industry has looked like over the last like 10 months, where for so the first time I'm hearing people in the US be a little more skeptical and kind of like, give me the cash now, but it's still just like wildly different in a world in which people expect easily over for a lot of, um, especially higher skilled workers, over 50% of their compensation yeah. to be equity, right? Like such a different world. What is one piece of advice that you'd want to leave with our listeners? And the second is, what's a piece of advice that you've received that's profoundly influenced your approach to work?
0: I would say they're both things that I've received, but I've massaged into my own. You know, a concept that I've already talked a little bit about, but it's really important to bring people along. When you bring people along, they will fight for your idea harder than you will, honestly. Taking that time, give you energy when you need it. It'll help unlock paths you didn't see. Like, it's really worth it. If they have objections to that, like taking the time to understand that is only going to make you stronger. So, really investing to bring people along. The other one I would summarize as you don't always have to be right out loud. I might be right a lot. I don't always need to be right out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that can be challenging for those of us who are very entrepreneurial. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a really great one. It's like, sometimes you can just be right to yourself.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Arielle. Um, this was a really, really delightful conversation.
0: Thanks I've had you. a fantastic time. It was great talking to you, Thomas.
1: Now, before we close, if you're a regular listener to Venture Visionaries, you know about Spoken Stories, a recurring segment where we go in and hear from the people it takes to build a venture, the employees. Dado being an international company, this required a little bit of finagling. Um, I'm not sure how much of the background noise we're going to be able to get rid of in post, but I'm coming to you from an airport lounge in SFO on my way to Istanbul. But I had one simple question for two employees at Dado. When did they realize that they had it? When did Dado go from being just a startup to a visionary venture in their eyes? And here's what they had to say.
2: When Ariel first told me about Dado, it was immediately obvious that it was a good idea, just from the perspective of somebody who's been an employee going through chaotic HR processes. But the point where I realized that Dado was really something special was when I started sitting in on customer success calls and even sales calls. Because in these calls, these HR teams would tell us just how much they loved the product and how valuable it was and how it helped them with this problem and this problem and this problem. And when we told them about new features or improvements, they would get so excited. From other products I've worked on, I'm used to the super fans getting excited about feature releases. But with Dado, every customer's a super fan. And that's just on the HR team side. Something else is happening on the employee side that might be even more powerful. When I talk to employees whose companies use Dado, a lot of the time they're not even aware that they're using this new HR software. They just know that a process that's usually all over the place and confusing and effortful is just simple. It just works and they don't need to worry about it or spend extra time on it or get distracted. It just works. And a product that solves something so completely, invisibly, is really powerful. (laughs) Dado is essentially a toolbox
1: that allows companies model really any employee experience you could ever think of. We of course started with having very specific experiences like onboarding in mind, but our customers quickly took this to the next level and came up with use cases we had not envisioned ourselves before. Such a healthy discourse between our customers and us is something I
0: really value as it allows us to build better solutions together.
1: And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But before we close, I want to leave you with the words of a rock star, Bob Dylan, who famously said, a person is a success if they get up in the morning and get to bed at night and in between they do what they want to do. I heard that all over the place from Dado. And that's my wish for you today, dear listener, that you have a moment today where you just get to do what you want to do. Because when we do, amazing things happen. Even Visionary Ventures. That's 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 it, I'm Thomas, see you next time.